Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And now if you'll please join in the words for lighting our chalice, they're in the order of service and they'll also be projected. We light this chalice, I think, truth is the Please take a deep breath. Try to get as quiet as you can in your seat. Amid the restlessness that spring can bring, let's take a moment to pause, to be still, to be here together. Take a deep breath and listen. Normally, on a Sunday morning, we would go straight from our sound into our prelude, but we're doing something special this morning, which is the flower festival or flower communion. If when you walked in, you didn't take a flower, I'm going to ask you to raise up a hand. We have some more here. Maybe we can have some volunteers help pass them out if anybody did not get a flower. Okay, we have a few people who still need them. Ronnie, do you mind? Or Steve, would you mind helping Ronnie get to the folks who are? Thank you. So when you walked through, you were either handed one, you're getting handed one now, or maybe you brought one with you. I want you to take a minute to look at your flower. I want you to look at its color, its texture, smell it, touch it gently. That flower in your hands is a unique creation just as you are. During our prelude, we are going to create our table of flowers, the first step in the flower festival. And so in order to do that, I'm going to ask you, as you are able, to come up and put your flower into one of the many vases here on our table. If you can't make it up to the front, please ask a neighbor to bring your flower up for you and I can come out and help as well. And Ron will play our prelude as we do this part of our flower festival. Please join me in a time of silent meditation and reflection. Breathe deeply, settle your body, and spend this time as your spirit and heart calls you to. May each of us continue to blossom unique and beautiful. And may we know all the challenges and joys of a life fully lived. So may it be. Our second reading this morning is by Elizabeth M. Strong. It's titled Flower Communion. Enter into the communion of flowers. 
enter with joyful hearts, enter with reverent thoughts. It has taken long months beneath cold ground for these flowers to prepare their blooming. It has taken each of us long times of growth through sorrow and joy to prepare for our living now. The blooming season is short. The flowers stay only a brief time. We are travelers upon the earth, travelers through all to brief times. Therefore, let our moments be bountiful. Let us rejoice in our unique colors, aromas, and sounds. Let us celebrate together in love that as we travel away, we take with us the memory of golden hours together among the flowers. I don't know if you caught in the Richard Gilbert reading during the video um, that he mentions death camps. Did anybody catch that? There's a reason for that. When Maya Chopek's, Maya Chopek, Norbert's wife, so Reverend Norbert Chopek, his wife came to this country, to America, in the 1940s, and Norbert stayed in Prague at that point. World War II broke out, and when it ended, Maya learned that Norbert had been killed in a concentration camp during a medical experiment. He'd been put into a concentration camp in the first place because of his religious convictions. Um, the Nazis took Prague in 1940, and their court records show that they believed that Norbert's preaching was too generous to the Reich for him to be allowed to live. So he was sent to Dachau, and he died there. Norbert was a gentleman, a Unitarian minister, and the message that he had created 17 years earlier in the flower communion was a message of hope, of love, of peace. And his message is one that we still embrace today as Unitarian Universalists. It's the message in part of our first principle that every human being has inherent worth and dignity, that every person is beautiful in their own way, has a right to a life that is full and safe with a chance to find things in this life that make them whole and happy. Our first principle is, I often think, the hardest of all of them. It's hard to remember in relation to other people when someone annoys us or makes us mad or breaks our hearts. And it can be hard to remember in relation to ourselves when we wonder why we aren't better at this thing or that or when we criticize ourselves for being this way or that. It can be hard to remember in a deep and meaningful way that our faith teaches us that every being, every being has inherent worth and dignity. Not every behavior not every belief, but every person, regardless of what color they are, what ethnic background they come from, what faith tradition they're a part of, regardless of who they love or what they call themselves or what gender they are. That's part of the message of the flower communion, the diverse uniqueness of every person that is beautiful. But the flower communion is also a message about who we are more broadly, about who we want to be, about the value we place on community. The story of Norbert Chopek is a painful one, that his message of love and acceptance, his message of honoring all beings, his message that is still the message of our liberal faith got him killed in such a way. That's a heartbreaking story. He was killed by people who bought into a system that taught that one person was better than another based on an aspect of their identity but also by a system that had a limited and restricted and broken sense of community. 
the flower communion isn't just a pleasant ritual of springtime. It has a deep and abiding message about the central tenets of our shared Unitarian Universalism. It tells us about who and how we want to be as a congregational community. A few weeks ago, I was at the doctor, and one of the administrators asked me what I do for a living, and I replied that I'm a minister, and she, not unlike most people when they hear this, was intrigued but then also felt compelled to share her whole religious journey with me. <laughs> and in this case, I was really glad she did. So she told a story of a congregation that she had loved, a Christian congregation, not UU, and of a pastor that had, in the midst of her marital troubles, told her that she had to stay with her husband no matter what. And I mean like no matter what he did to her in spirit or in body. So she left this congregation that she loved, understandably. And then she found herself invited through her daughter to a social event at a nearby Baptist church. And she went, and I'm paraphrasing here what she said to me. She said, they were so nice, so nice. And I thought, this can't be real. No way anyone is this nice. And she went on to tell me that she went back again and again, fully expecting that someone would like give it away, right? And reveal themselves as like, petty or unkind or judgmental, but they just kept being so nice. <laughs> and she said to me, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted a piece of that. I wanted to know how that felt, right? So she described wanting to know how it felt to receive that niceness regularly and to be part of giving that niceness away to other people. And that conversation started me thinking over these past few weeks about communities that blossom that thrive and that grow. It started me thinking about what makes the difference between communities that flourish and those that die on the vine. Because we live in a time when communities like this one, congregations, are at risk, right? Coming to Sunday services is no longer compulsory in most parts of the country, either familially or culturally or socially. No one's gonna look askance if you aren't at church on Sunday morning. Being part of a religious institution is no longer expected. And folks often feel that they can accomplish their growth and meet their spiritual needs on their own. So what makes communities that grow, that show people that undertaking spiritual growth and meeting spiritual needs is so, so much better when it's done in the context of a community? So I made myself a list, because I like lists. A list of the differences between a community that someone walks into and thinks, that's what I want to be a part of. I want a piece of that and a community that someone might walk into and think, there's no place for me here. Now, my list is hardly exhaustive, and in fact, I shared it with a bunch of colleagues and got dozens of responses for things they would add to my list or ways that they would nuance my, the words on my list, okay? So there's a lot of different things that could go on this list, but I'm gonna share with you mine, and I share it in the spirit of deepening our collective thinking about who we want to be the kind of community we want to keep building. And I want to note two things, and the first is the most important, so please, if you hear me say nothing else, hear me say this. I offer these not as praise or indictment of this community right now, okay? I'm asking you to consider these, and I leave it to you to discern where you think we fall on these spectra of community behaviors, okay? The second thing is, some of these I'm gonna move through somewhat quickly because they're a little more obvious, and others we're gonna unpack a little bit more, okay? So the first thing that came to my mind 
was that a community that will blossom is a community that lives with hope rather than anxiety. Now, my colleagues offered all different options for the antithesis of anxiety, but I stuck with hope. I kept my guns on this one, and here's why. Anxiety so often breeds inaction because it can feel paralyzing. We find we can't make a choice because we think nothing is going to be perfect. But hope, real hope, not the passive kind of wishful thinking, but the action-filled, creative, energized hope that leads to overcoming challenges, for me, that's the antithesis of anxiety. And in this moment in our world, it's so easy to feel anxious. Am I the only one? Anxious about the state of our government, anxious about the climate crisis, anxious about violence and oppression and racism and work and just your regular life. It's much harder to cultivate hope than it is to feel anxious. Anxiety is kind of easy in a way. But the reality is that no one wants to be part of an anxious system. We all have enough of that in our lives outside. We want to be part of communities that offer us hope, that remind us that there is actually light in the darkness, that bolster us when we feel despairing and help us see a way forward. Communities that can be a beacon in times of struggle and strain are communities that will continue to thrive. A community that will blossom is a community that is open and outward-looking rather than insulated and isolated. And I mean this in two somewhat different ways. Communities that are afraid to shine their light, that are afraid to tell the world who they are and what they believe, are communities that will shrivel. I'm not suggesting hubris or absolute certainty of our rightness, but rather a clarity of mission, a deep understanding of self and a willingness to communicate that clearly to the world. It's necessary in a world in which people have so many choices of communities to belong to, that there be clarity about what each community actually stands for. This also has to do with how a community is in the world, meaning a community that only looks after itself, only tends to its own, is one that gives in to the impulse of tribalism and insulation, and that does not encourage blossoming. Communities that can be open and clear about their mission and that can offer others a way in, that can apply their mission out in the world to help heal it, those are communities that will continue to thrive. Somewhat related to the question of how insulated a community is as opposed to open is abundance versus scarcity. So a community that will blossom is a community that leans into a sense of abundance rather than a fear of scarcity. Scarcity mentality, and we've talked about it here before, teaches that there's never enough. Never enough time, or volunteers, or money, or effort, or passion, and so on. Abundance teaches that there is. That a community can find ways to be the community it is called to be, even when things are tight. A community that can adapt to changing times and resources without a defeatist attitude, and with a clear and continued commitment to its sense of purpose is a community that will continue to thrive. A community that will blossom is a community that embraces kindness rather than pettiness. This one ties back strongly to our first principle, but also to our understanding of the real possibility for forgiveness and change. Communities are made of people. People make mistakes. They treat each other badly. They misstep in word and in deed. It's going to happen. 
As long as humans exist and make communities, feelings will get hurt and toes will get stepped on. The difference between a community that folks want to be a part of and one that gives people pause is the difference between a community that can take these kinds of missteps and still move forward together as opposed to one that holds grudges or revels in each other's failures or mistakes. It sounds so simple, but the question of how kind a community is is pretty much the central question. And I'm by mo no means suggesting that anything goes. We know that that's not safe or healthy. But that is why it's contrasted with pettiness, right? Kindness versus pettiness. Because what we're talking about is the latching onto small things and turning them into community crises as opposed to being kind enough to allow room for everyone's humanity. Kindness, gentleness, a forgiving heart, genuine care for each other. It's what drove the admin at my doctor's office back to her now beloved community over and over again, even though she was skeptical. This was, as she described it, a community of people that were genuinely kind, that knew how to forgive, how to be gentle, how to give space for each other's frailty. A community that knows how to allow every single person in its midst to be human is a community that will continue to thrive. With that kindness perhaps comes one of the most challenging of these dichotomies. A community that will blossom is a community that engages in honest communication rather than gossip or behind the scenes chatter. I say this is related to kindness because I'm not talking about honest communication that is blunt to the point of cruelty. I'm talking about honest communication that is compassionate kind, clear, and addressed directly to the subject of the issue. And I say this is among the most challenging because we're not often taught how to give and receive clear, honest, and compassionate feedback to each other. Too often it feels too hard to have that honest conversation directly with the source of the problem, and then outlets are found that are unhealthy. There's this thing called triangulation. Has anyone heard of this before? Some of you, I'm sure, have. The idea of triangulation is that when one fears going directly to the person that one is upset with, one enlists the help of a third person, creating a triangle, right, or a small group to relieve the pressure or to get the work of communication done without having to do it directly. But triangulating is somewhat universally understood to be detrimental to the formation of secure and trusting bonds of relationship. More often than not, especially in a small community, word gets back around, and then the community has com communication happening through gossip and back channels, and the actual issues never get addressed. And a culture of complaint and mistrust and fear is developed. So a community that can speak honestly, but kindly, directly to each other about issues and concerns, that's a community that will continue to thrive. Often in community, doing what's right isn't easy, but it becomes easier when we focus on the next duality. And for this one, I owe some gratitude to my colleagues who, although none of them phrased it quite this way, lifted up this particular issue of health. A community that will blossom is a community that focuses on we, not me. Communities are not built to serve an individual. Communities exist, yes, to help foster connection between individuals, to serve a mission or purpose as determined by their constituents, 
but they don't exist so that each individual feels perfectly happy at every moment. They do not exist for the express purpose of making me happy or any particular one of you happy. Communities are about the community, not the individual, though they ultimately help hold and heal and strengthen the individual as well. A community that is filled with individuals who understand that their needs are not the only needs, that their vision is not the only vision, that their hopes and fears and longings are not the only ones, and that the community has a calling unto itself, that is a community that will continue to thrive. A community that will blossom is a community that lives with love rather than with fear. This one for me in recent years certainly has felt the most central. As my own theology has developed and deepened to bring in more and more of our universalist past, and as my understanding has evolved around what it is inside of me and inside of all of us that will help heal the world, the idea of expansive universal love has become more and more precious to me. In fact, probably all the other spectra could be folded right into this one. Expansive love is we-oriented, it's open, it's abundant, it is hopeful, it is honest, it is kind. All those other things, insularity, anxiety, scarcity, and I orientation, pettiness, they're all born of fear. Now, I'm by no means the first one to suggest that love is the opposite of fear. Plenty have made that claim. And it can easily be argued with. I'm happy to have that chat with any of you. In this case, what helps me is a quote from this blogger uh, Evan Muller, who wrote this. Fear springs from the belief that we are separate, and in separation, there can be no love. So the idea is that fear comes when we count ourselves different from others, when we draw tight lines and declare someone or something else other than us. If every person recognized the inherent worth and dignity of every other, recognize that we are all humans rejoicing and suffering and loving and being, then we wouldn't have an other, and without an other, we would have nothing to fear. So if humanity could muster enough love for itself to see itself as interconnected and interdependent, we could overcome fear. Living with love, expansive universal love that is sourced from the deep conviction that we are all in this together, living with that kind of love holds at bay fears and the illusion of separateness and othering and loneliness. That kind of love is addictive in the best way. It's healing, it's life-affirming, it's life-giving, and it is life-changing. So a community that understands the deep, real, open, expansive love that can change lives and will change the world, that's a community that will continue to thrive. Hope, abundance, openness, kindness, honesty, a we orientation, and love. It's just the beginnings of a list. You could easily add flexibility over against rigidity, forward facing rather than backward clinging. There are hundreds of things we could say, but this is the beginnings and it's the ones that came to me most strongly because these are the hallmarks of communities that people are drawn to, that people want to be a part of, and these are the hallmarks of what Unitarian Universalist congregations aspire to. 
When we celebrate the flower communion as children, it's an experience of beauty, a ritual of acceptance, a commemoration of the springtime rebirth that we are all observing in these weeks of earthly changes. For children, there's color and new life, and the message is all about how each beautiful flower represents the gifts and talents of each of us. And then when they come together, they create this wonderful array. And how then when we take a flower back at the end of the service, we're reminded of all the wonderful gifts we are given by the community and the people who make it up. That's all there for us adults too. But there is another layer. The flower communion created in the years after World War I brought to this country on the eve of World War II is a reminder of what happens when we don't embrace the best of what a community can be. When we let identities, political, personal, religious, social, or we let skills or whatever it is define who is in and who is out, who can play together and love each other and work together and who can't. The Flower Communion is a reminder of what happens when communities fail to strive for the best they have to offer the world, when they fail to recognize the bonds that hold us close, and when they fail to live the truth of those bonds with love. The Flower Communion is a beloved ritual of our faith, done across the country, across the world. And it brings into our Sunday services in a special way our fundamental messages of love and openness and hope and abundance. It reminds us that the building up of communities of peace and truth and love is vital to the safety of the world. It reminds us that our job is to be part of creating something that other people want to be a part of creating a community in which people feel seen and known and heard, a community in which all gifts are honored and we are given in return gifts and challenges and joys and love beyond measure. May our Flower Festival today remind you of all that is possible in a community such as this. And may it be a call to all of us to embrace the foundations of our shared Unitarian Universalism so that we might become the type of community others want to be a part of. So may it be. Whenever Norbert Chopek led this ritual in Prague, he would consecrate the flowers. Today, we are together going to bless them. Um, I'm going to ask you to please rise in body or spirit. I'm going to say some words adapted from Norbert's traditional blessing. You have one line, which is to say, may it be so, and you say it when I do this. OK? <laughs> Super easy, I promise. Infinite spirit of life, spirit of peace, spirit of love, we ask a blessing on these messengers of fellowship and hope. May they remind us of the beauty of the earth, of the capacity for the cold and the dark to transform into warmth and light, of what is possible in this glorious life. May they remind us to rejoice in our diversities of being, of knowledge and of gifts, but also may they remind us to be one in our desire for justice and in our affection for each other and for life. May they remind us of the value of friendship, of doing and sharing alike as we continue our journey of searching and learning. May we not let awareness of others' talents discourage us or sully our relationship. But may we realize that whatever we can do, great or small, the efforts of all of us are needed to do the work of love and justice in this world. May the flowers we brought and the flowers we leave with remind us that we are each unique, precious, beautiful gifts with the power to grow and change, 
coming closer each day to the lives of peace, love, and spirit that we seek. We brought flowers, we put them all together, and we created something beautiful. Now, as we sing hymn 305, which will also be projected, I'm going to invite you to come up to get a flower, but we're going to do it slightly differently, so please listen. I'm going to ask you to come from the sides and form essentially a line, because you're going to get a flower from the person in front of you. And the reason for this is that we don't always get exactly what we want. <laughs> in community, the gifts we receive are sometimes unexpected or unlooked for, and the beauty comes from trusting each other. So you're gonna trust the person in front of you to pick something beautiful for you, and then we'll all be able to walk out of here with reminders of the possibility for hope, openness, abundance, kindness, honesty, a we orientation, and love. So as we sing, please come and we will get our flowers. And we'll extinguish the chalice as we finish out our choosing of flowers for each other. Claude? We extinguish this flame, the warmth of love, or the energy of action, burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. We ever strive to be a community that calls to others, that opens our doors and our hearts to the world, and that loves deeply and honestly. May we come ever closer to realizing these worthy aspirations here inside these walls and beyond them. Get your flower and go in peace.